Okay, welcome to Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio. This is actually a combined show, usually Progressive News Network, and it's a companion show, the Environmental Justice Report, both on Blog Talk Radio. Um, My name's Janine Moloff, and I am the producer and host. Uh, Welcome to our Sunday show this Father's Day. So if you saw the advert, and again, Facebook keeps getting us lower and lower, keep in mind, if you don't get a chance to hear this broadcast during our showtime, you can just actually Google PNN on Blog Talk Radio or PNN with Janine Moloff. You'll get to it, and you can. the shows are all archived, and you can listen to them at any time. So our headline today, two things. Number one, is Trump judge Cannon, in other words, Judge Aileen Mercedes Cannon, she's the judge that's been charged with handling this criminal, these many criminal indictments in Florida at a federal level. So the headline is, is, judge, is Trump Judge Cannon a crooked fix? It's a question, not an accusation. And the second part of the headline is Cop City Part 2. I would have loved to have given it a better headline, but Blog Talk Radio, their mechanism's not so great. Anyway, let's go to the advert. Donald Trump's done it again, or as I call him, dumb Donnie Trump. He has managed to upstage all other news stories with his constant shenanigans, the latest ones proving that being rich, spoiled, and frankly stupid can elevate almost any moron to the presidency. Now facing federal criminal charges, he has a suspicious stroke of luck pulling Judge Aileen Mercedes Cannon as presiding judge over his criminal case. Now, Judge Cannon is not only a Trump appointee, but her recent mishandling of the earlier seizure of the national security documents um, which, upon which this case is based upon, which also drew criticism and a slapdown from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals as inappropriate and prejudicial, basically creates the impression of judicial impropriety. Translation, it makes it look like Judge Cannon is not only not impartial, makes it look like there's a crooked fix in like the mob, the mafia would do. So basically, based on what legal experts from both sides of the political aisle, both left and right, if they're honest, say, Judge Mercedes Aileen Cannon should recuse herself. In fact, there's some legal opinions that say she must legally recuse herself, but she hasn't done so. I'm going to discuss Judge Cannon's judicial tenure to date in light of this unusual stroke of luck for for Trump. Um, I'm going to amend that a little bit because I think we're going to run short on time. So basically, I'm going to talk about you know, what judge can, what the law says Judge Cannon must do and um, take it from there. So then the question is, quote, is Judge Cannon seating at this case merely luck or was this a political manipulation? In other words, was this a fix? Again, not an accusation. It's a question. The next story is part of an ongoing cities about Cop City. It's Cop City Part 2. This is a massive... Uh, quasi-military <clears throat> training uh, training compound uh, outside of Atlanta that's being proposed allegedly for both firefighters and cops. Um, 
there's a lot of criticism of it, and rightly so. I'm going to today, you know, last week, the big story was Cop City Part One. And we talked about how, um, you know, peaceful protesters, including one whose name was Torgutita, Torgutito, was 26 years old, uh, indigenous activist, queer, queer activist, and um, he was murdered by the police. Uh, the police claimed that they thought he had a weapon, except that there was no gunpowder residue on his hands at all. Furthermore, the autopsy showed the police, the you know the prosecution's own, you know, cities. Let me back up here. The autopsy that was conducted by the city of Atlanta, which would presumably favor police, uh, also said that Torgutita was actually seated cross-legged at the time he was shot to death. Kind of hard to have a weapon handy, isn't it? So today. And we talked last week about how this was not only triggered by mass protests, but also you know, how the cop city compound is really just going to further militarize police uh, and why it's not needed. Today, we're going to go into the historic background behind the project and the historic background behind police foundations in Atlanta and case in Atlanta. And the history is particularly sordid, and I would add, I would argue that both Republicans and Democrats are both equally culpable on this. Well, also have a very special jackass of the week, and actually this week there were several, but the lead jackass is actually a Jenny, and of course we'll run our My Little Margie segment. So this Father's Day sounds like it's going to be an, an interesting show. Um, I know my father passed away in 07, but I know he's looking down and just saying, go get him, girl. All right, let's do this. So, Cop City Part 2. Why Atlanta? Why now? Now, that came just straight from the headline of this investigation. So, I'm predicating this mainly on an investigation, an investigatory report that that was conducted and written up by... um, journalist Micah Hurstkind, and it was originally published by Scalawag, and it was part of, quote, a week of writing, Stop Cop City. Okay, Micah Hurstkind is an organizer and writer who's based in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, this is a phenomenal report. Okay, I, I wish I had written it. I'm just going to say it right there. Um, a lot of work done into it. So, there is a content warning that this S, quote this essay mentions uh, state-sanctioned murder. Well, yeah, we know that. All right, so let's talk why Atlanta. Well, this writer, Herskine went all the way back to really the lead-up to the 96 Olympics, which were held in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and the corporate push for that. This is a story, this is my own interpretation, that's really about not only systemic racism, but also economic chaos. This is about gentrification, which is a polite term for criminalizing poor people for being poor, criminalizing uh, modestly income people that aren't quite poor, but, you know, modest um, for being that way, and pushing them out to make way for... Um, 
you know, a population that is definitely whiter and more affluent, including rich corporations. Nothing new here. But Herskine really did a great job, you know, describing this. So the, the Cop City is a battle initially. At first blush, looks like, okay, they're fighting over this creation of a police urban warfare center that will cost approximately $90 million, and that's as documented by Treehop. Now, this urban warfare center, first of all, i got a question why we need that. All right. I, I've written about things similar, and frankly, what they're doing is that the urban warfare tactics used against alleged enemies in Fallujah are going to come to Main Street, USA. But it always hits the scene. It always hits uh, people that are unhoused and people of color first and most severe. I'm just going to tell the truth. Now, where do they want to put this? Not in actual Atlanta proper. That's what you have to understand, okay? Um, just like here in St. Louis, we have St. Louis City and then St. Louis County. And they're both called St. Louis. But there are parts of the city that are very poor, and there are parts of the city that are quite affluent, and never the twain shall meet. So um, there is forest land that is referred to as the four lungs of Atlanta, and that's documented by atlantagegeorgia.gov, um, some 381 acres of forest land, and that's also as documented by newyorker.com. Um, the city, you got to remember, they're going to they're going to cut down this old forest. Now, one of the claims is they're going to, for every old growth tree they cut down, they're going to plant, what, 100 little seedlings or whatever. Keep in mind, it takes anywhere from, what, 30 to 50 years for a seedling to grow to maturity, really? And there's no need for this. So it isn't just a conflict about that. The city itself, under, I think it's Mayor Dickens now, um, again, black politician, they're going to. They claim they're going to invest over 30 million. It's the city's pledged over 30 million, and that's uh, as documented by at atlpresscollective.com. Um, and then it will be supplemented by at least 60 million in private funding. So, um, it's all of these things. All right, but. According to Herskine, this battle over Cop City is really, quote, a battle for the future of Atlanta, end quote. And to just quote directly from Herskine, quote, it's a struggle over who the city is for. The city's corporate and state ruling class actors who have demanded the Cop City be built or the people of Atlanta who have consistently voiced their opposition and demanded a different vision for the city. It is a fight over who the city belongs to, over who Atlanta is run for, and who it is run against, over who is welcome to live and enjoy life here, and who is expected to simply labor here for low wages and under constant surveillance, end quote. I'm going to add, again, this is about gentrification and tax breaks for the rich and punishment for the poor and underprivileged. It's about corporate rule and the ongoing attack by corporate rulers to destroy what little shreds of democracy remain. Now, this, this new battle started with the police murder of 26-year-old 
uh, his last name is Tortugita. Now, this goes back January of 2023. This was He was the first police state-sanctioned murder of the year in Atlanta. There was a joint task force, uh, including local and state police officers. They marched into the area called the Wilani Forest, and they found Tortuguita. He was a 26-year-old queer indigenous Venezuelan forest defender, and they assassinated him. That's it. Okay? And that's just documented by TheGuardian.com. Now, they pumped 57 bullets into this young man. Then the police lied and claimed that Tortuguita, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble, Tortuguita had a gun and was going and fired at them first. Well, that would have produced some sort of gunpowder residue on this young man's hands. The autopsy conducted by the city, you know, on the police, on the prosecutor's side, found they said there was no, zero, zero gunpowder residue on this young man's hands. And he was murdered while seated cross-legged. That's it. So the cops not only told a lie, they told a set of incredibly stupid lies. Okay? Now, the projects also claimed the lives of trees in the forest. Clear cutting actually began in March of 2023. Again, as documented by on Twitter by Defend ATL Forest. Um, and then on top of it, so far there's been at least 42 people that have been charged with these insane charges of domestic terrorism. And that's as documented by the ACLU, um, the national security system, how officials in Georgia are suppressing political protest as domestic terrorism. There were dozens more who were violently arrested as documented to www.welcometohellworld.com. Okay. And the title is the movement to stop cop city isn't going anywhere. Okay. The thing about domestic terrorism is truly frightening. Um, I've talked about this before on this show and written about it as well. And in a lot of states, this is where state-level laws can be very dangerous. In a lot of states, they have um, not only expanded the idea of what constitutes domestic terrorism, but they've created definitions that are very, not only expansive, but very vague. So that basically, if you're holding a sign made out of poster board saying Stop Cop City, theoretically, could you be arrested as a domestic terrorist and face those federal charges? Um, Yeah, you could. That should frighten everybody because this is corporate rule destroying the First Amendment. Make no mistake about it. This story goes far beyond just this one battle. Now, the fight to stop Cop City has gone not only national, but also international. The fact that I have to do this program in some depth, because you got to remember, um, the alternative press on the left, we're going to document. But when you're dealing with CNN and ABC and some of the others, they're going to do this both sides crap. All right? They're going to fight. They're going to basically deal in... Um, you know, false equivalencies, and that's nonsense, all right? So there's a lot of opposition to Cop City among the people who actually have historically lived in Atlanta and surrounding areas. So 
why is the city of Atlanta so hell-bent on building this? And, you know, if the city if, if the city of Atlanta wants to build Cop City, why are they trying to situate it on precious forest land? You know, that's referred to as one of the four lungs of Atlanta. You know, we don't have to – we now know even the worst skeptics have to admit that climate change is really here and it's it's potentially disastrous. Just the wildfires in uh, Canada right now. If you're in New York City, all you have to do is look out the window. The sky is orange. This is not normal. All right? So trees are one of the things we do to try and protect this environment. So cutting down an entire forest of old-growth trees is incredibly stupid. Why do they want to put it there? Um, And then the question is, why now? Plans for Cop City were proposed as early as 2017, and the city had gone against it. Well, according to, again, Herskine, this is due to, quote, shifting dynamics of economic class and racial domination in Atlanta, otherwise known as organized abandonment. Okay? And I agree with that. This is about gentrification. And Organized abandonment, um, you know, is where they use police, quote, to manage outrageous inequality. So organized abandonment occurs, according to Herskine, when the state retreats from its job of providing some reasonable social welfare. And that goes along with an interrelated buildup, quote, of policing and imprisonment to manage inequality's outcomes, you know, or... Um, Herskine also quotes abolitionists uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Craig Gilmore, and they put it quite poetically when they said that organized abandonment really is, quote, profound austerity and the iron fist necessary to impose it. Okay, and it's true. Um, To put it in common terms, this is about the money class wanting to take over. They don't like seeing unhoused people on the streets. They don't like seeing poor folk on the streets. They want everything to look like they're in a ultra-wealthy version of Disneyland. That's it. And they will push everyone out. That is unpleasant to them. Let's get real here. Okay? So, Cop City is the Atlanta ruling class's solution to organized abandonment. Okay, according to the, I'm going to read this directly from Herskine's article, quote, Cop City is the Atlanta ruling class's chosen solution to a set of interrelated crises produced by decades of organized abandonment in Atlanta. Okay, end quote. Gilmore explains further, and this is according to ucpress.edu book, um, quote, Gilmore explains, quote, crisis means, quote, instability that can be fixed only through radical measures, which include developing new relationships and new or renovated institutions out of what already exists. Okay? So these crises include the following, quote, the threat and reality of mass uprisings against police violence. All right, I'm going to stop here for a second. We've seen that, the George Floyd protests come to mind, and Breonna Taylor and many others, and those protests had to happen. 
They just did. I mean, can you imagine the uproar in certain affluent communities if police decided to just, you know, pound on some wealthy white man and then murder him? It's the same thing, okay? You know, they're having a hissy fit because there were mass uprisings. They were peaceable. The, The only people that were really violent during the George Floyd protests and things like that, for the most part, were the police. Okay, so these crises include, one, quote, the threat and reality of mass uprisings against police violence. Two, extreme and racialized income inequality and displacement, end quote. Okay, that is a fancy way of saying this. these crises also happen when you've got a lot of, we've got a small group of wealthy people and a whole lot of very poor people, and the wealthy people don't want to see poor folk in their neighborhood, so they push them out. They either push them out of the home, housing market by jacking up the taxes if it's a family-owned property so they can no longer afford to stay there and they lose their house that way. Or if they're renters, they jack up the rent. And then once they're unhoused, the police come and they criminalize being homeless and then they arrest them. That's it. And for those of you that are sitting there and going, well, they can't do that. That's unconstitutional. <sighs> To the black community, baby, that happens all the time. Get real. Okay? We are not post-racial. All right? Get over yourselves. So that's two of the crises. The third crisis happens when, quote, corporate media narratives in the wake of the 2020 uprisings that threaten the image of the city as a safe place for capital investment and development. Okay? And four, and a municipal succession movement that threatened to rob the city of nearly half of its tax revenue following the uprisings, end quote. Okay, so translation, here's what's going on here. The wealthy people, and that includes affluent black politicians that have, you know, risen up, all right? I- I'm going to say right now, I-, I I have no use for people that, sell out their own, okay? I will get on a Jewish politician as much as I will anyone else. But when we're talking about organized abandonment, um, this is basically letting rich people get major tax breaks because they can. We have it here in St. Louis, all right, to encourage fairly affluent younger people to buy homes in the city, um, the city, again, uh, under a black mayor, uh, they gave tax abatements. Now, mind you, that's money that would have gone on property tax. That's money that would have gone to the school district. And the people buying these properties can more than afford the taxes. But it, it's this recognition that here, you know, we know that you don't like the idea of being around black people, even though you don't want to admit it, and you don't want to be around poor people. So we're going to give you this little incentive to grace us with your presence. This is what gentrification does. Make no mistake about it. And, you know, even white liberals are claiming, but I'm not racist. Well, you know what? If you need a tax rebate that you wouldn't get in the affluent suburbs to move into the city because, you know, it's the inner city, then guess what? You are racist. Make no mistake about it. You see the city as inferior. 
just the term inner city as opposed to what, outer space? I mean, let's get a little real here because you're not going to be in a segregated community anymore. You're not going to be, you know, in a sundown town where the only people that live there are of the same economic level and the same skin color. Let's get it real. So, again, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Craig Gilmore put it, organized abandonment is basically when the state abandons its municipal responsibility to provide some social welfare in the form of safe schools, in the form of public health that's available to anyone, including the poorest of the poor, in the form of, you know, a fire district that can respond in the form of keeping up the roads, all the things they're supposed to do. Where they give corporations and rich folk, you know, a pass. The meanwhile, the poor have to pay even more taxes. And then at the same time, because they know the average person is going to get angry, they build up these thugs that they call police. Okay? So that their formula is right. It is, quote, profound austerity and the iron fist necessary to impose it. And so... You know, basically, Atlanta saw recently there was mass uprisings against police violence, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and those uprisings were very much justified. There's also extreme inequality and displacement, which is a nice way of saying a lot of poor folks that have been pushed out, including out of homes that were owned by their family for generations, especially in the black community, but because the taxes got jacked way up, these elderly people can no longer afford to pay the taxes to stay in their homes. That is evil. And then you've got corporate media that paints the 2020 protest as something so threatening that the city's no longer safe. And so big corporations, investors don't want to invest in it. And then the municipal succession movement, which is a nice way of saying white flight or wealthy white flight where the city will lose half of its tax revenue or its tax base. So we better give in to these wealthy white bigots. Okay? That's what this is. The fact that the mayor of Atlanta is a black man is irrelevant. If he gives in to this, and he has, then he's useless. Okay? So what did big money want in Atlanta? Well, there were three plans. Keep in mind, Cop City, according to this author, according to Herskine, it was designed and pushed forth by this um, kind of coalition of state, corporate, and nonprofit groups. Okay? And the idea is Cop City would address these crises that, again, have been caused by the rich and corporate that are facing Atlanta in three ways. One, it would provide, quote, a material investment in police ca capacity on the heels of the uprisings, a project to prepare for and prevent future rebellion. Okay. Two, quote, it would represent an ideological investment in the image of Atlanta, signaling to corporations and those attracted by the influx of tech and other high-paying jobs that and other high-paying jobs that Atlanta is a stable, securitized city that will protect their interests. And three, quote, Cop City would constitute a geographical investment, one that refashions publicly owned land in a disinvested area into something new while opening up new opportunities for development, end quote. Okay. Again, 
this is all a very fancy way of saying this is about pushing lower-income people, unhoused people, and communities of color out. That's it. Because all the Karens and Kens get upset when they see unhoused people. And all the Karens and Kens get upset when they see a lot of people of color and queer people and all that stuff. Unless, of course, you're the politically correct queer person. Okay? Buttigieg is fine with them. But, you know, Tortuguita, also queer, but a person of color and a forest defender, he wasn't the right kind of queer person. Let's get a little real here, okay? This is about politicians basically handing over their power, handing over our power as a public entity to the rich and corporate. That's it. But they have to have their own capos, their own thug defenders, a.k.a. the police. I'm just being honest here. You know, for 30 years I taught in St. Louis City. And I can honestly say I I taught in neighborhoods that were considered so dangerous that in the 80s they were lovingly referred to, and I'm being sarcastic, as Vietnam. And then after that they were referred to as Fallujah. And I cannot recall a single time when the police really were patrolling to prevent violence. It seemed like they only arrived after somebody had been killed. After there was a shootout. But, whenever there was a baseball game downtown that drew white people in from the burbs, or if there was a president, Barack Obama was in town, or Senator McCaskill or whatever, the police were there in full force. Because, you know, they're important people. Again, being sarcastic. So that's what this is about. Let's talk more, according to Herskine, let's talk more about organized abandonment and what he calls the Atlanta Way. Okay, again, there's some sarcasm here. So Herskine refers to when thousands of Atlantans, Atlantans, you know, began the protest, uh, took to the streets where they were protesting police murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Rayshard Brooks. Okay. Now, to the average white person listening in, they just think, well, okay, that's unfortunate, but why are they so angry? Those police assassinations were evil. Make no mistake about it. But it wasn't – they weren't the only ones. Okay? This has been going on for decades in conjunction with decades of, quote, social disinvestment, displacement, police expansion – And the protesters were calling for, quote, a reversal of these dynamics. In other words, for decades, like many urban areas, areas that were poorer, that were blacker, received basically no positive attention from the city. Their streets were allowed to fall into disrepair. Their schools were denied equal funding um, and fair funding, that is, because you had to give rich white folks tax breaks. This is basically the city, another city abandoning the poor and communities of color to give corporate and to give tax money, direct tax money to corporations to help build things like sports stadiums. I'd like to know why in the hell public money is going to, to uh, help build sports stadiums 
that only certain people will, will be able to afford entrance or afford the ticket. Why should our tax dollars pay for private enterprise? Because why? They may toss us a few jobs. You know, if public money went to fund these stadiums, that means the public owns the stadium or has at least a percentage of the ownership. In which case, we should get something out of it, and we're not. This is just thievery that corporations have committed against cities. And again, it ties in with systemic racism and economic caste. All right? They know the average white suburbanite doesn't care. They believe, you know, what corporate media has fed from the time I was a little kid, painting communities of color as dangerous, when communities of color were the ones facing the danger. The police were the dangerous ones. Okay. 21st century Atlanta, according to Hearstkind, has in, has basically experienced, quote, that's uh, straight from one, rapidly publicly subsidized development and gentrification. Okay. Two, the further disintegration of the social safety net. Three, the expansion of surveillance and policing. And four, rising inequality. Atlanta is one of the, I think, the most surveyed city in the United States, okay? So what's happened is this. Um, 1990 hit, and really since 1990, the black population has actually gone down in Atlanta. used to be 67%, now it's down to 48%, okay? But the uh, number of adults with a college degree has doubled, Okay? At the same time, investment firms, like in a lot of places, have gobbled up the housing, the housing stock. In fact, according to this, bulk buyers have uh, purchased over 65,000 single-family homes through the Atlanta metro area just in the last, just in the past decade. And that's from AJC.com. Okay, these are invested, investor-owned homes. And then the city attracted some major tech companies to which I'm sure they gave massive tax breaks to. Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Honeywell. And yes, there were more middle and upper class white people that came. At the same time, the city pushed their working class and their black communities out. Let's be honest. Okay? Water here. The policymakers wanted to make Atlanta attractive for big business. But at the same time, they made it a hard place to live for the people who had lived there historically. In fact, in 2022, Money Magazine uh, dubbed that Atlanta was, quote, the best place to live. Okay, maybe if you're white and rich. It was also identified by Realtor Magazine as the, quote, top real estate market in the country. You would think New York City, wouldn't you? Nope. Now, same year, 2022, Atlanta was also proclaimed the most unequal city, according to AJC.com. And Atlanta is the most surveyed city in the U.S., and that's according to AtlantaMagazine.com. Okay? So what is the Atlanta way? This is what they're talking about. There are certain black political leaders that have sold out. How did we get her? How did it become the Atlanta way? Well, according to this article, the Atlanta Way included, quote, the strategic partnership between black political leadership and white economic elites that work in service of corporations 
and upper-class white communities and to the detriment of lower-income black and working-class communities, end quote. Not my words, first kind. Now, excuse me. There are some historians, they name Maurice Hobson, Adira Drake Rodriguez, and Dan Immergluck, that have documented um, the Atlanta Way throughout the 1900s. Um, this Hearst kind goes back to 1996, that this was, this was the turning point. And Hearst kind called the 1996 uh, Olympics, where Atlanta was going to, Atlanta was named as the, the city that was going to, you know, house the Olympics as, quote, a key accelerant of the Atlanta way, end quote. So Immer Gluck noted that, you know, all these preparations for the 96 games, quote, effectively set the stage for long-term gentrification and exclusion in the city, focusing primarily on making the city more attractive to a more affluent set of prospective citizens, end quote. Okay, so again, just like we see in practice, in a lot of cities that, you know, basically host the Olympics, they push poor folk out, okay? Because, you know, people with money don't want to see unpleasant things. And, yes, I'm. it just is what it is. So at the same time, you know, they said Atlanta went through this transformation to attract the 96 Olympics. Uh, Hobson documented that um, the city and corporate leaders – tried to create this image of Atlanta that, quote, had it all, the citizens, the citizens, the dynamism and the charm, along with an economic and social robustness that made it one of the city's most vibrant new cities, end quote. Now, that meant infrastructure upgrades and new Olympic sta- stadiums, but, quote, it also entailed a redefinition of who the city was for, end quote. Again, when we see the Olympics, and, you know, this has kind of been one of my chief criticisms of the Olympics. Um, the Olympics brings prestige, but it also brings a lot of economic hardship to people that aren't rich, that are unlucky enough to live in a city that's going to host the Olympics. Make no mistake about it. And, you know, again, this ties into not only systemic racism, but it also ties into systemic economic inequality that's become more pronounced in recent years, but it's always been there. Okay. Now there was, they quoted a uh, quoted a geographer named Seth Gustafson that argued that reshaping Atlanta um, was also kind of part of the way they wanted to basically redefine the geographic, I'm sorry, the demographic image of the city. Okay, that's the one basically when they wanted to create this image of Atlanta to, you know, host the Olympics. They also wanted to to create a demographic image that Atlanta was a city that was, quote, one without the homeless, public housing residents and other low income Atlantans who were also predominantly racial minorities, end quote. This is the ugly underbelly of not only systemic racism and systemic economic inequality, but it's using gentrification to get there. Okay? Keep in mind, the Olympic infrastructure, including the stadiums, were publicly subsidized. I want to reiterate that. Publicly subsidized. Public tax dollars went to pay for a lot of this. Well, 
the public did not get the benefit. You know, it's kind of like we see here in St. Louis. Um, you know, they build some big box, some store builds a new headquarters, okay? Or, for instance, we got the geospatial um, headquarters again, and it's going to stay in St. Louis. But you want to bet the majority of the, of the uh, employees there aren't coming from the city. You know, once again, this is, you know, basically they want the city because they can get the land cheaper. So, and this is another way of cheating people as well. You know, the city lets an area deteriorate, especially if it's an area, um, you know, populated by black and brown people and poorer people. And then, of course, property values go down. And then because of that, the developers can come in and buy these properties for next to nothing. You know, you can't tell me this isn't a plot. Of course it is. Um, so you've got these publicly subsidized Olympic infrastructure. Uh, Atlanta wanted to, quote, create an image of itself as a prosperous, authentically global city, end quote. Well, yeah, it is, but, you know, once again, Atlanta is also part of the Old South. Make no mistake about it. So even though, you know, maybe they get Barack Obama to visit, it's still racist. Get real. I'm just going to say it. So the idea of a world-class Atlanta, this was, quote, charted by a coalition of state and corporate actors as documented by prismreports.org. And the uh, the report was was uh, was titled "Fight Stop Cop City," and again, these coalition of state corporate actors, as you will, how do they do their work through public-private partnerships? And one of them was the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games, or ACOG, and downtown boosters like Central Atlanta Pro- Progress or CAP. Now, I remember when I first heard the phrase public-private partnerships, you know, it's it's easy to blame everything on the Republicans, and it's fun to blame the Republicans, but that was Bill Clinton and Al Gore that pushed the public-private partnerships. They should be allowed. I'm sorry. hit the mic by accident. Public-private partnerships is this murky blurring of lines that should never be allowed because it totally – uh, gets in the way of transparency and accountability. As far as I'm concerned, anything with public money should remain public with full accountability and transparency, no exceptions. All right, Because when it's a public-private partnership, and then we have a system at the same time that allows you know, influence peddling, you know, they call it campaign contributions, but that's what it is, then guess, guess who's going to win? It's going to be an unequal relationship. A public-private partnerships remind me of a marriage between an abuser who's six foot five and 240 pounds of pure muscle and the woman's five foot two and 90 pounds and she has no money he keeps all the money she has no legal rights he you know he can get away with anything you know what's going to happen and in a public private partnership there is no legitimate way you can guarantee that the public interest will be safeguarded in fact, they pushed this, this is my opinion, they pushed public-private partnerships as a way to blur the lines while influence peddling so that corporations could get what they wanted 
and you, the politicians will have to deal with those that pesky accountability and transparency. Never should allow. So the Olympification of Atlanta included the following. This is really evil. Number one, between 1990 and 1996, there was the displacement of roughly 30,000 people. This is according to JSTOR.org. Now, when they say the displacement, that's a polite term saying they pushed 30,000 poor folk out of the city. Number two, quote, the illegal arrest of, uh, let me go again, the, quote, the Olympification of Atlanta included, one, quote, the displacement of roughly 30,000 people between 1990 and 96, end quote. So that means they pushed 30,000 people out. Just said, get out. Number two, quote, the illegal arrest of over 9,000 homeless people in 1995 and 1996, in part through the Atlanta Police Department's use of, get this, pre-printed tickets with categories filled out for African-American, male, and homeless. And the pre-printed tickets, that is um, from an Atlanta background paper, www.ruig, let's see, hyphen G, IAN.org. Okay? So basically, they arrested people for being homeless that had committed no crimes. And they were ready to go. And let's see, there's some more. Number three, quote, a partnership between the city and Travelers Aid, a nonprofit organization that purchased one way tickets out of town for homeless people who were reportedly required to sign pledges not to return. And that's this documented by www.wbur.org, as well as um, the ruig.gn.org. Okay, this is all part of the Olympification process. It also included four, quote, the demolition of public housing like Techwood Homes, the U.S. Old, oldest federally subsidized public housing project. Um, Number five, quote, the passage of new city laws hyper-criminalizing homelessness. And that's according to www.nlg.org. Okay. The title was Starving the Beast, Practical Abolition in Atlanta. Number six, quote, the construction of a 1,300-bed municipal jail downtown to clear mostly black homeless people from the streets. And seven, quote, the destruction of neighborhoods like Summerhill replaced by an Olympic stadium. And that's as documented by WBUR.org. Okay, let's go over this again. Okay, we're not going to be able to get through this entire report today. There will be a part three, but I want you to really understand. So the turnaround for the city of Atlanta that led to this fight for Cop City and further police brutality really hyped up. The, the, the triggering event was Atlanta vying for the Olympic Games in the 90s. And the Olympification of Atlanta included, okay, I read it all to you. One, they displaced 30,000 people between 90 and 96. In other words, these people were just kicked out. 30,000 people pushed out. Then... There were illegal arrests of over 9,000 homeless people between 95 and 96. And the Atlanta Police Department used pre-printed tickets with the following categories, African-American, male, and homeless. So they made 
they, they arrested homeless but had committed no crimes just because they were homeless. Then they had a partnership between City and Travelers Aid, and this was a nonprofit organization. This group paid for one-way tickets out of town for homeless people. But these same people were allegedly required to sign pledges not to return. Then you had public housing that was demolished, like Techwood Homes. Then you had, um, I'm kind of going out of order now, they destroyed neighborhoods like Summerhill, and Summerhill was replaced by an Olympic stadium, paid for with, again, public funds, largely. They built a 1,300-bed municipal jail downtown to basically imprison black homeless people because, you know, it was unsightly, I suppose, according to them. And they passed some new city laws which hyper-criminalized homelessness. I'd like to know how you can criminalize being homeless legitimately and make it actually constitutional. All right? I, I don't see how you can. I, I know cities have done this before, but you're basically criminalizing poor people for being poor and not having a place to live. Okay? That's crazy. Now, the, this uh, writer quoted a housing activist named Anita Beatty, who's argued that the Olympics were, quote, a dry run, a dress rehearsal for the developers and the elites to take over the city, to take over the planning, housing construction, to eliminate public housing, end quote. And Beatty also noted that while the pattern of, quote, demonizing of poor and homeless Atlantans by the moneyed-powered elite did not begin with the Olympics. The 1996 Summer Olympic Games gave that practice the adrenaline it needed to become the city's prevailing, even blatant public policy, end quote. Okay? And that is exactly what happened. According to Herskind, decades after the 96 Olympics, the city continued to demonize poor people and cater to rich folks, uh, and it became public policy. Um, so, and to give you some examples, the Beltline is, for instance, a publicly subsidized but privately constructed 22-mile path around the city. And it's raised property values in the areas around it since construction began in the early 2000s. Again, who owns it? If it's publicly subsidized, the public should have ownership or partial ownership. Now... Immergluck, one of the researchers, documented that, quote, while city officials promised in the plans for the Beltline to set aside funding for affordable housing and to keep people in their homes as property values rose, in practice, they instead focused on building trails and parks that would raise property values while accelerating gentrification, end quote. And it goes on, okay? Um, you've got the $1.6 billion with a B, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which houses the Atlanta Falcons downtown, it opened in 2017. It received an estimated seven to 700 to 900 million in public funds. Quote: To re-socialize the cost, privatize the profits financing scheme. End quote. Okay. Now you have to think about that phrase: socialize the cost, privatize the profits. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that criminal misappropriation of public funds? I mean, if you or I did that, we'd be facing felony charges and sitting in a jail cell. But apparently rich folks can get away with it all they want, along with the politicians that they own. You know, 
let's face it, a lot of these politicians of any race, the only difference, in my opinion, between them and streetwalkers is whether their suit came from, you know, Lingerie Express or Brooks Brothers. Just being real. There's also uh, a renovated State Farm Arena that cost some $142.5 million. Um, that's home to the Atlantic Hawks. The $142.5 million came from public funds from the city. There's also the 2017 sale of the Turner Field Stadium to Georgia State University. Again, it received approximately $5 million in tax breaks. Community members fought it. They had a tent city. They demanded some form of a community benefits agreement to kind of offset gentrification. Of course, that didn't happen. Um, there's also a $1.9 billion with a B subsidy for something called the Gulch. Now, this has been resisted very fiercely. Uh, it was a plan that was improved in 2018, and it transfers public dollars as well as 40 acres of publicly owned land in downtown Atlanta to a private developer for, quote, the creation of office, retail, and hotel space, and mostly unaffordable housing. Okay. Now, Atlanta's poured money into these development projects, but the leadership, quote, has refused to capture the increased tax revenue associated with its investments. Okay? So, Hearstkind goes on and says, I'm reading straight from Hearstkind right now, quote, sometimes this happens through financing mechanisms that divert new tax revenues from the areas surrounding the development back into the corporations behind the project, Siphoning money away from schools and other public goods, end quote. Okay. Again, this is uh, criminal mismanagement. You know, you can write a law around and make it technically legal, but it is, in, in theory and in effect, it's pilfering. It's stealing from the public. And they get away with it. Okay. So, and then, of course, there's, you know, the point that as these commercial properties uh, are reappraised, they're chronically underappraised, which means that there's, their corporate taxes go down, okay? Again, Mayor Dickens is fine with it, but isn't that the same thing that Trump's being accused of? And I'm not defending Trump at all, but I'm just saying – if you chronically underappraise something and then, you know, for the purpose of, you know, lower taxes, but then you sell it for an inflated price, isn't that tax fraud? You know, once again, this is what's going on. This is what's behind, you know, Cop City. And then, of course, you have the Atlanta Police Department's budget. It's grown uh from $130 million in the year 2000 to $283 million in 2023, which is roughly one-third of the entire city budget of Atlanta. And where do you think that money's coming from? Of course, it's, it's coming from it's, – it's, star, it's starving our schools. It's starving public health, everything else. I'm looking, I'm kind of keeping track of our time here. I think this is probably a good point to stop. There's more. There's going to be a part three to this story. There has to be. But when you're talking about the move behind Cop City, make no mistake about it. 
um, they're very wealthy and the politically, you know, they're political servants. They got nervous about people coming out to protest police assassinations of people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Richard Brooks. And they got scared because they saw, besides black folks, there were people of all races there, all ages, all genders, and it made them nervous. So while they're squeezing us to death, make no mistake about it, their intent, in my opinion, that is, is to use the police to be their their capos, their thug enforcers, you know, their Nazi stormtroopers, if you will. Okay. And this is why Cop City is definitely wanted. And it it helps, again, through the Atlanta Police Foundation, which, again, is – police foundations are not actual police departments. Police foundations are actually nonprofits that are basically paid for by corporate entities. And then they give all sorts of goodies to police departments just to make sure that the allegiance of the police department isn't really to the law corporations because you you know generally speaking most people aren't going to bite the hand that feeds them so this is part two you know of the stop cop city series we will go on with part three next week hope you learned something let's move on to our next story okay so i'm going to do is i'm going to put a little sound effect on here we go Okay, and we're back. So on to story number two. Keep in mind, next week we will have part three of our series, Stop Cop City. Again, you can listen to any of our stories at the archive, no problem, at any time. So by now everybody knows Donnie Trump was criminally indicted. Um, I think there's seven, let's see, seven charges and 37 counts, something like that. And by some miracle of fate, who did he judge as who did he draw as the preceding judge of his federal um his federal criminal trial in Florida? None other than Judge Aileen Mercedes Cannon, who is a recent Trump appoint appointment. Uh this is something that is really frightening. Okay, so I'm gonna go to this first story. And, you know, that one of the headlines is unfair, and it is. So this is from Reader Supportive News, but the original article was written by Isaac Chotiner for The New Yorker, and it was published June, 20, June 18th, excuse me. The headline is The Frightening Power Aileen Cannon Has in Her Hands. Okay? So, you know, this article talks about how, okay, Judge Cannon, she serves in the Southern District of Florida, federal judge. She's the same judge that ordered, quote, a so-called special master, and that was somebody that was going to review the classified documents that Trump had squirreled away at Mar-a-Lago, 
Um, and she also blocked authorities from using the documents. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to read straight from this. Okay, so let's let's talk about Aileen Cannon. Quote: Last year, Judge Cannon, who serves in the Southern District of Florida, ordered a so-called special master to review the classified documents at issue, which federal authorities had found at Mar-a-Lago, and she blocked authorities from using the documents in her investigation while the review was underway. That decision was reversed several months later by a three-judge panel on a federal appellate court, which included two other Trump-appointed judges. The panel was highly critical of Judge Cannon and called out what many perceived to be her clear bias towards the former president, writing, quote, to create a special exception here would defy our nation's foundational principle that our law applies to all without regard to numbers, wealth, or rank, end quote. So the author of this article, Isaac uh, Chotner, spoke then to Stephen Gillers, who is a professor emeritus at NYU Law School. He's also an expert on, you know, matters of the judiciary. And, you know, he wanted to know why Cannon was assigned to the case, what steps could the government take to remove her, because she's not going to recuse herself, okay? Um, so... You know, one of the questions that Chotner asked was, what do we know why, about why Judge Cannon was given this case? And, um, you know, the answer was, quote, the Southern District of Florida is quite insistent in its internal rules to ensure that all case assignments are done randomly. They are emphatic about the importance of random assignments and stress that the clerk of the court for the assignments emanate from is only a functionary and has, which has no discretion whatsoever. Okay, that's their claim. That doesn't mean, end quote, that doesn't mean I believe it. Goes on to say, quote, there are 15 active judges and 11 senior judges in the Southern District of Florida. The chief judge is entitled to a reduced burden of cases. And senior judges, because many, if not all, have opted for a lower caseload or have opted not to be assigned certain categories of cases, have a lower chance of getting assigned a particular case, end quote. Um, so, you know, Lewis giving uh, Chotner this, uh, so basically the idea is, well, she's you know, one of the newest on the bench, so it's just luck of the draw, okay? Um, so, you know, the quote was, someone has to win the lottery, right? Now, the author goes on to say, quote, on Saturday, just after we spoke, this, and I'm directly quoting this, the Southern District confirmed to the Times that Cannon was randomly chosen, stating, quote, normal procedures were followed. Because the judge was chosen based in part on proximity to West Palm Beach, Cannon was one of seven active judges and three senior judges in the pool for the random draw, end quote. Okay. Um, so they give some other instances here. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to state, okay, I really don't buy this. I mean, they can make the claim all they like, but, you know, do they have a paper trail that proves this was truly random? You know, do they have proof and some sort of accountability measure where it couldn't have been um, manipulated? Because to me, this looks like a fix. I'm just going to say it. Um, now, uh, so let's go on here. Um, okay, I just lost my place. I'm sorry, folks. 
Now, one of the questions was, you know, and one of the quotes is, the quote, the 11th Circuit of Appeals did reverse Judge Cannon's decisions, told her to dismiss, dismiss the case. That was the one with the special master, which he did. It was a lawsuit Trump filed. There's no – okay, let me move on. I can admit when I made a mistake here. Um, so the question is, what can the government do if there's, you know, fear that the judge will not – be impartial and according to um, you know this legal expert I'm sorry I lost my place here you know Stephen Gillers um, he says quote it raises the question of recusal okay for those of you that are not familiar when a judge recuses themselves from a case it means they just they basically excuse themselves from being part of the case because they they either have a conflict of interest that they admit or even the, the appearance of a conflict of interest, okay, so that no one can question that, you know, the fairness of the trial, the impartiality. So going back to this quote, it raises the question of recusal. There's a statute dealing with federal judge recusal. It's 28 U.S.C. 455, and you should look at paragraph A. It's the very first sentence, and that's the most frequently cited sentence in motions to recuse. It says the judge should recuse if the judge's impartiality might reasonably be questioned, end quote. The article goes on to point out that just because a judge's impartiality might, quote, reasonably be questioned, doesn't necessarily mean that the judge is going to be unfairly partial to a certain group, okay? It really speaks to the public um, questioning whether the judge is going to be fair. Public trust is important in the work of a court. So that's how he explains this. Um, so, you know, the question is who would make the judgment if the government does push for recusal? Because Cannon is not going to recuse herself. And it says, here, according to Gillers, it says that, quote, the judge herself gets to make that decision in our system. If she denies the recusal, the government could go to the 11th Circuit and ask it to order her to recuse herself. And that's a process called mandamus. Technically, it's not an appeal. In effect, you're suing the judge to force the judge to recuse. Mandamus efforts are rarely successful. It goes on to say, Gillers goes on to say, quote, there's one other thing the government can do aside from doing nothing, and that is to write a letter to the judge suggesting the reasons she should consider recusing herself without being formally asked to do so. That's done also so as not to create a formal motion. Okay. To me, I see a clear problem in the power of judges. All right. And that is, to me, if it looks, if a judge if a judge has a conflict of interest, whether they like it or not, yeah, they should be forced to recuse themselves. If there's even the appearance of a conflict of interest, again, they should be forced to recuse themselves. That's it. Okay? These judges shouldn't be like little gods, and they've gone power hungry. Okay. So that's part of it here. I'm going to go to the second the second. Um, uh, source I have here. And this is a piece from Slate. Okay? And this is a piece that was written by Norman Eisen, Richard Painter, and Fred Wertheimer. And um, it was published June 12th. And the headline is Aileen Cannon's Previous Rulings About Trump Demand Her Recusal. Now, to give you some information about the authors, because I think that's credible too, the author's credentials. 
Wertheimer is the founder and president of Democracy 21, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Their mission is to, quote, strengthen Americans' democracy. So, you know, he's a political type person. The other two, though, are actual attorneys, and they come from different sides of the political aisle. Okay? Norman Eisen served as the White House ethics czar and ambassador of the Czech Republic under Obama. Um, he was also special counsel of the House Judiciary Committee from 19 to 20, including for the first impeachment and trial of Donald Trump. And Richard W. Painter is the S. Walter Ritchie Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. He was also Associate Counsel to President George W. Bush in the White House's Counsel Office, serving as the Chief Ethics Lawyer for the President, White House employees. Okay, so the point is this. Painter is obviously a major Republican. I started to laugh when I heard White House um, Ethics Lawyer for George W. Bush because it's just too funny. Um, but the point is, is anybody who claims that this piece in Slate is biased, you've got two lawyers from, you know, opposite sides of the political aisle agreeing, saying the same thing. Okay? So this is really about recusal. And I'm just checking our time here, really, to make sure I don't go over. You know, we're kind of running. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but there's a very relevant quote here. And the quote is this. Quote, recusal is necessary here to avoid serious concerns about Judge Cannon's impartiality in the public eye. The judicial recusal rule is about preserving the public's confidence in the judicial system. It does not require a showing of actual bias. Rather, as the Supreme Court has explained, it simply asks whether an objective observer in the public would have questioned the judge's impartiality. That is clearly the case with Judge Cannon. It is irrelevant whether a judge subjectively believes herself to be impartial. Because the statute aims at ensuring both justice and the appearance of justice, a federal judge must recuse if facts connected to the judge actions in the case would cause an objective observer to doubt the fairness of the proceedings, end quote. I think that says it all. Now, whether or not Judge Cannon actually does the right thing remains to be seen. She has already interfered in the investigation. All right? You know, she is the one that took the wrong step. She ordered federal prosecutors to stop using materials that were seized from Mar-a-Lago in their investigation, and she appointed the special master to review whether the materials were actually subject to either executive or attorney-client privilege, which is nonsense. Um, it's not a witch hunt. It's the law. And then Judge Cannon's other statements and actions in previous proceedings really make clear that she thinks Trump should get differ differential treatment from any other criminal defendant. In fact, uh, as documented by, it's on document clouds, on the special master order itself, Judge Cannon in the special master document wrote that, quote, as a function of plaintiff's former position as president of the United States, the stigma associated with the subject seizure is in a league of its own, end quote. Um, and she reiterated that position uh, when she denied um, the government's motion for a partial stay of her order pending appeal. Um, 
you know, again, this, the 11th Circuit of Appeals said it was nonsense. All right. There is another piece here in Slate written by Mark Joseph Stern, and the headline is Judge Aileen Cannon can absolutely sink the federal prosecution of Trump. Now, Stern is a legal eagle in his own right. Okay. Uh, let me go back here. He's a senior writer. Okay. I'm looking for. Okay. Well, anyway, he's done some phenomenal work here. And, you know, this is a piece that was uh, published June 9th. And, you know, she, bottom line is this, when she ordered the special master, she really put, made, she really ordered a grinding halt to the investigation itself. Okay? That's the equivalent of running interference for him. Um, you know, this is something that we can't have. This is about national security. Make no mistake about it. All right. Now, we've all heard the ludicrous claims by little Donnie Trump that he can just declassify anything just by magically thinking about it. Well, actually, that's not that's not just a lie. That's an incredibly stupid lie. I mean, that's a major boner. Um, there are definite procedures that must be followed in the declassification of documents, especially regarding national security. There is also one classification of documents that cannot be unilaterally declassified by any president, and that's anything pertaining to nuclear uh, defense, period. That's it. Can't unilaterally do that. And then, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, well, why did Trump do this? Well, I don't really care why. That's, that speaks to motive. I have theories about that. But the fact very simply is this. If anyone else had taken those documents, really stolen them because they belonged to the government, and hidden them away, they would, first of all, not only would they face federal prosecution, uh, not just espionage, but possible uh, count of treason or high treason, but their butts would have been at the very least sitting in a supermax. They would, have not, they would not have been trusted to receive bail. Passport would have been taken. And possibly they would have been sitting in Gitmo. Okay? That's all there is to it. And Donald Trump is no different. Make no mistake about it. Um, so, you know, once again, this is... According to Mark Joseph Stern, uh, you know, when Cannon, you know, issued an order that uh, basically forbade the government from, quote, further review and use of any of the materials seized from Mar-a-Lago for criminal investigative purposes, okay, she, you know, they, they just said, that just showed, um a profound misunderstanding of national security damage assessments. Okay. Okay. Again, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit included two Trump appointees, and they said her decision would have a, quote, chilling effect on fundamental national security duties. Okay. This is about whether or not our national security is intact or not. 
this is serious. And so, you know, once again, I think Judge Cannon should be forced to recuse herself. And based on that quote, once again, if they have to go the mandamus route, do it. Just do it. She's so far out of line, it's not even funny. Okay? All righty. So now, let's move on. Okay. So let me grab. um, We're moving on. We kind of got things a little out of order today. We're moving on to our Jackass of the Week Award. Give me a minute. Uh, keep in mind, this this is a live show, people. All right, there's there's no editing. It's exactly as I'm doing it. Okay. All righty, here we go. Okay, waiting for it. Come on. Welcome to PNN's Jackass of the Week Award. Pray on Jack. Pray on Jenny. You never sounded more intelligent. (laughs) Okay, so today, wow, it was hard to pick who our jackass of the week was. Um, And again, it tied in with Trump and his criminal case. And there were basically, I'd say, three, or was it four? Give me a second here. There were three contenders, actually four contenders. One in particular stood out. And so the contenders were um, Senator Tim Scott, who is a a Republican presidential candidate. He's also the only black senator, um, but, you know, he kisses Trump's ring while he tries to appear reasonable. Uh, We've also got Senator Lindsey Graham. And then we also have, okay, I lost my place here, folks. I'm sorry. Okay, so it is three. And then also we have uh, Republican Representative Nancy Mace. Okay? So this is about the criminal prosecution. Keep in mind, Bill Barr, who was one of Trump's attorney generals, you know, who is a fixture at the Federalist Society, far right, you know, has said, look, even on a mild case, they've got him dead to rights. But that didn't stop these other people from kissing Trump's ring. So Senator Tim Scott first. This is a piece from the Post and Courier. And Tim Scott called, well, he admitted that Trump's indictment was serious, but he also claimed that Biden is hunting Republicans. You know, I don't remember seeing any Democrats with AR-15s on on January 6th, come to think of it. But, you know, Tim Scott was just – so Tim Scott's been quoted saying several things. Quoted, as Americans, we have to have a justice system where the lady of justice wears a blindfold. Now, this is what Scott told reporters in Spartanburg during an appearance. Um, and he goes on to say, quote, what we see today across this administration of President Joe Biden is a double standard. That double standard is both un-American and unacceptable. You can't protect Democrats while targeting and hunting Republicans, end quote. And he was serious, Okay. And then there's something else here um, that was just too funny. Let me go down here. Um, Scott also said one thing. Wait a minute. I lost my place here. Oh, my goodness. So, anyway, um, yeah, so it was a double standard, 
okay? And I'm just going, no, it, it, it really isn't, okay? I mean, Tim Scott needs to remember that when, let's see now, what, when, um, Lord, there were other, there were Democrats that lost offices. You know, we impeached Bill Clinton over lying about an affair with Monica Lewinsky. Okay? We're not talking about national security secrets. We're talking, we're talking about he lied about a blowjob or several. And Republicans wanted to tar and feather him. And while that's between him and his wife, hardly meets that, you know, that level. Okay? So that's number one. Okay? Um, we also, and that was a piece in the Post and Courier. Now, there's another piece in the Post and Courier, and this was written by Caitlin Bird, and this deals with Senator Lindsey Graham as well as um, Senator Tim Scott. Senator Lindsey Graham defends Trump, calls Espionage Act charges absolutely ridiculous. Now, keep in mind, Lindsey Graham used to be a JAG prosecutor, okay? That's a prosecutor for the military. He knows about national security, so he knows better. Lindsey Graham was on ABC News this week. Now, this piece here was published June 11th, so it was last week, and he said, whether you like Trump or not, he did not commit espionage, end quote. He did not disseminate, leak, or provide information to a foreign power good news organization to damage this country. He is not a spy. He's overcharged, end quote. Well, Senator, Lady Lindsay needs to get his act together because even Bill Barr disagreed, okay? Former Attorney General William Barr described the charges as solid counts, and this was on Fox. Uh, and Barr was quoted saying, quote, I was shocked by the degree of sensitivity of these documents and how many there were, frankly. Uh, Barr also said, quote, but even if half of it is true, then he's toast. It's a very detailed indictment, and it's very, very damning, end quote. Now, when Bill Barr, who's a former attorney general, says degree of sensitivity of the documents, when you call documents sensitive, what you're really saying is this is information that our enemies would love to get that could hurt our national security interests in all sorts of grievous ways. Make no mistake about it. And again, Lindsey Graham knows better, which is why he's up for the Jackass of the Week Award. Now, according to the indictment, and it was unsealed June 9th by the DOJ, Trump's accused of many things, including keeping documents related to, quote, nuclear weaponry in the United States and, quote, nuclear capabilities of foreign country, end quote. Again, no president can unilaterally or by themselves dis, uh, uh, declassify any documents related to nuclear. That's the law. So even on that, they've got them. Make no mistake about it. Keep in mind, while, Lind while Lady Lindsey Graham huffs and puffs, the Republicans in the 90s impeached Bill Clinton and wanted to make him serve prison time for lying about an affair. And it wasn't with a spy. It was a 20-something-year-old who had a huge crush. Okay? So, you know, once again, this is 
Lindsey Graham is quoted as saying the following as well, quote, I think the espionage charges are ridiculous. I think what happened to Hillary Clinton, what she got away with is very similar to what happened to President Trump, and we'll have an election and we'll have a trial. But I promise you this, most Americans believe, most Republicans believe that the law is used as a weapon against Donald Trump, end quote. Okay, I don't know what Donnie Trump has on you, Lady Lindsey, um, but... Lady Lindsey Graham, but you just need to let it go. Okay? Now, it wasn't just Lindsey Graham that made an ass of himself there. Senator Tim Scott had to put his foot in his mouth as well and said the following in this article, quote, What we've seen over the last several years is the weaponization of the Department of Justice against the former president. And this is on Fox, he said this, quote, you don't have to be a Republican to see injustice and want to fix it. You don't have to be a Democrat to see injustice and want to fix it. You just have to be an American and stand up for the right thing, end quote. I'd like to know, how is forming a grand jury of citizens who reviewed the actual evidence weaponization? I'd really like to know. And, you know, there was somebody on Facebook that said it perfectly. I'm just going to. Right here, okay? This was beautifully put. And it was, I think this woman was, I think her name is Becky Walters. This was brilliant, okay? Uh, okay. And what she said was the following. This was from Occupy Democrats. Okay, so it wasn't her, it wasn't Becky Walters, from Occupy Democrats. And it's true, though. They said the following, quote, Joe Biden did not indict Donald Trump. The Democratic Party did not indict Donald Trump. No politician indicted Donald Trump. A grand jury of regular, everyday citizens in Florida who reviewed the evidence indicted Donald Trump. Bam. That's it. So all these other people are really asinine. But the biggest jackass of all, and that's why she gets the Jackass of the Week Award, the prime jackass, or the Jenny rather, is Congresswoman Nancy Mace, a Republican. Now, you have to realize something here about Nancy Mace, okay? According to her own webpage as a U.S. congressperson, she said the following, quote, most of my family are military veterans. I am the daughter of U.S. Army retired Brigadier General James E. Mace, who saw two tours of combat in Vietnam and another in the 1964 Dominican Republic coup d'etat, okay? So, she also is a graduate of the Citadel, the first female graduate of the Citadel, and she is a veteran herself. So she knows national security. She knows better. And what did Nancy May say about these, these indictments? She was, it was a June 11th interview on Fox News, Sunday Morning Futures, and she said, May said that Biden wants to, quote, give Donald Trump a death sentence for documents. Quote, he's facing hundreds of years for, for mishandling documents, and they want him to die in jail. And yet Hillary Clinton is standing free today. She's bragging about the two-tier system of justice, raising money off of it, end quote. Okay, so Congressman Mace, you know better. Your daddy was a general. You know damn well this wasn't about him mishandling some documents about the White House laundry or documents about, you know, the menu. These were top secret, classified. Some were considered special category, which is above top secret and nuclear documents. 
that he kept in an area that was unprotected, that many people could have had access to. He definitely put our national security in danger at, at an incalculable level, and you know better, lady. You just do. Uh, the other said, ask nine things, but, you know, because of this, drum roll, please, U.S. Representative Nancy Mace, you have won the primary jackass of the week award. Pray on, Nancy Mace. Pray on, Jenny. Oh, you've never sounded better, Nancy. Okay. So we have just a few more little little things here. I've got 30 minutes left. Hopefully you can hear all this. Um, for all of our um, – I don't know if we're going to get to my little Margie today or not. But for all of you that think when it comes to gun control, think thoughts and prayers are adequate, you know, sentiments, here is, and I hope you can hear it because I'm not good with tech, here is Randy Rainbow with thoughts and prayers. Give it a second. We're waiting.
Okay, I love Randy Rainbow. I'm sorry, I cannot help it. Okay, so we still have a little bit of time left. Hopefully you heard that. Um, And now we're going to go. All right, give me a second here. I'm going to put a little music on. Well, not music. I'm going to put a little sound effect on while I get this together and we get ready for our little My Little Margie segment before we end. Okay, so get ready for My Little Margie. Here we go. Got to get back to that. Here we go. And now it's time for PNN's My Little Margie. What will our favorite Neanderthal troll do next? Oh, will she light the Capitol on fire? Will she sport, hopefully, a better hairdo? Because, sweetie... That Neanderthal brow is so last decade, but we'll find out because it's my little Margie and here we go. Okay, so here we go with my little Margie. What did she do now? Well, there is a piece from the Washington Post. It's an op-ed written by Dana Milbank on the insurrectionists, many of which have been convicted and are going to serve some serious time this was published june 16th just a few days ago and you know this was it starts with quote donald trump could not have asked for a nicer arraignment day celebration uh, according to milbank quote during the very same hour in which the former president surrendered surrendered to federal authorities in miami his republican allies in the house were it were in their most visible and official way yet embracing as heroes and martyrs the people who sacked the Capitol on January 6, 2021, in hopes of overturning Trump's election defeat. Okay, and it, end quote. So it goes on. So you know, little Margie was was basically helped out by her buddy Beavis and Butthead clone Matt Gates, and they held this fake hearing honoring the insurrectionists. Okay, now. Gates can't really call a hearing because he's not a committee chairman, but that didn't stop him. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy, you know, who is basically politically impotent, let it happen. I don't know about other things with Mr. Kevin, and, you know, that's between him and whatever, but you get the idea. So Gates tried to make this look official. There were congressional seals on his nameplate. There was a big screen behind him. Yeah, I wonder if he's got little hands and little feet, you know, Beavis and Butthead clone, because you know what they say about men that have little hands. Okay, that's another thing. Anyway, um, Gates advertised the field hearing, as he calls it, as part of how, quote, the 118th Congress is investigating the weaponization of the federal government, end quote. Now, you got to remember something. They're doing this just as dumb Donnie Trump is saying that he's going to get political revenge if, God forbid, he gets back in office. All right? Talk about weaponization. But, again, hypocrisy doesn't bother these people, especially our little Margie. Okay? So there were, like, there were people that were alleged witnesses. Um, 
you know, so some, who were the invited witnesses? Well, there was the wife of Ronald Maccabee. Um, Maccabee is on trial. He's waiting for trial for allegedly attacking a police officer and dragging him into the mob. Okay. Then you've got underwear model John Strand. Okay. Sentenced to two years and eight months because he was part of the mob that breached the Capitol. Well, Mr. Strand, you're an underwear model. I'm sure you're going to find a lot of friends in the prison that are just going to love your southern exposure. All right. You've got activist Brandon Straka, who was sentenced to, oh, my goodness, this is really horrible, home detention and probation. Wow. Then you've got the aunt of Matthew Perna. Now, Perna was um, one of the... You know, one of the insurrectionists, he committed suicide as he was waiting sentencing. You've got Ed Martin, who is an organizer of Stop the Steal, okay? You know, the, the incitement itself. And Mr. Martin has a long history of all sorts of, you know, sleazy actions back here in Missouri. And then you've got Jeffrey Clark, who was the Trump DOJ official who, you know, worked really hard, tried to basically abuse his power to force states to toss the election results, and that's just documented by Politico.com. Then you had some lawmakers, neo-Nazi dentist Paul Gosar, okay? Um, you have Ralph Norman, another bigot. Uh, and then, of course, our little Margie. Now, little Margie added her, quote, my deepest sympathy for each of you and all the pain and suffering that you all had to go through because of this government. Okay? And she said that they were victims of sick, evil people. Okay? And she and other lawmakers had, quote, a constitutional duty to object to Joe Biden's fraudulent electoral college votes because we all believe the election had been stolen, end quote. They even blamed Trump Attorney General Bill Barr of suppressing evidence. Okay, that came from Gates himself. Um, you know, these people, it isn't just our little Margie. These people really are just either incredibly stupid liars or they're, you know, psychos. I don't know which. Um, but this is what our little Margie has been up to lately. And, uh, you know, you get a little tired of her, okay? But, you know, little Margie kicked off the proceedings with what um, what Dana Milbank referred to as a Trumpian flourish. She said, quote, murderers released into the United States, rapists released into the United States, 107,000 dead Americans, Alejandro Mayorkas policies are the cause of all this, end quote. I don't know what that has to do with the other stuff, but, you know, once again, our little Margie, you know, the Neanderthal troll, which – desperately in need of a serious makeover um sweetie we can see those nasty roots of yours and the split ends but once again you know she did the intellectual equivalent of I don't know babies. okay so once again she has really succeeded in just making a mockery of our government and just demonstrating that the maga far right um, I don't know. They're either a bunch of liars or they're just so stupid that I don't know. Maybe they're just inbred. Okay. So that's our My Little Margie segment. So we're going to say goodbye to My Little Margie for this week. 
who knows? Next week she will find another imaginary evil to chase, you know, and we keep hoping that we won't run out of Prozac for this little psychopath, but you never know. So once again, our little Margie with those those guns, like taking male hormones, sweetie. But, you know, what can I say? Okay. So, once again, I hope you learned something today. I want to mention that, again, Stop Cop City, that our major story, that we did part two today. Part three will most likely be next week. Uh, because, again, this is not just what happened recently. It's been building up for a while, and it speaks not only to police brutality, but it also speaks to systemic racism and systemic uh, economic inequality and the constant influence peddling that our politicians not only enable, but welcome because they benefit. And this is politicians, white, black, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, men, women, whatever. There is no difference. You know, we have a serious truth deficit in this nation and we have to demand the truth um i hope you enjoyed randy rainbow's little spiel i know i always do he's funny as hell um and this father's day like i said my father passed in 07 and um some of this is really what i do is a testimony to him okay my father believed in this country. He served in the U.S. Navy, naval aviation firefighting. He saved lives. and But more importantly, he believed in democracy. He believed in fair play. He believed in the truth. And so, Dad, this one's dedicated to you. Um, you know, again, to all the dads out there, I hope you have a meaningful Father's Day. Um, and... Tune in next week for our next installment. If you like this show, please um, download it, send it to others, click like on your social media or on Facebook. You can also find my Twitter feed, Janine Moloff, and click there as well. Um, there is no paywall. If you missed the show, all our shows are archived. This is a live broadcast. Make no mistake about it. I have my outline in front of me, but... There's no skullduggery here. This is right there on the spot. Um, so, again, I hope you learned something from it. I hope you got a few laughs towards the end um, with all the lunacy around us. And just be strong. Remember, it's our nation. It's our Constitution. And we don't lose to the fascists unless we just give up. Okay? With that, I say good night and bless you by whatever you believe in.